Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Today we have Louise Alexandra Erkskin. She is a poet, photographer, and a content creator. Welcome so much to the show. I've been really looking forward to this. Thank you so much. Me too. One of your poems that says, Where the Devil Kisses. Can you read that to us and then we could discuss it? Yes, absolutely. Where the devil kisses. It doesn't burn the way you think. Kisses sweet like honey, seducing slowly. Mind beguiling, body following, anticipation building until suddenly they bite and your flesh is gently tearing as your soul bleeds out on the floor. Your mind is playing catch up, leaving you terrified, but craving more. Love that poem. And let's go over some of the lines where the devil kisses, it doesn't burn the way you think. Kisses sweet like honey. It was actually a poetry prompt. And I saw that line on Instagram and I was interested. So I clicked on the little hashtag that went with it. There was quite a few on there, but they were all sort of like a version of the same poem. And they were, it was, you know, it was like a very sexual poem, like a felt a bit like whoever wrote the prompt. I think because they had put a poem up that was like, I felt like they'd been watching Lucifer and just, but when I first read the line before I'd read their poem, I just thought like, that's my life. Like I've kissed the devil. I know what that feels like. And uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't sexy. Like, you know, in the way that it's being portrayed, it was, you know, it it was wonderful at first, but then it bit me, you know, like, and it was, I have another similar one that I wrote, like a micro poem that says, sweet little lies drip from poison tongues. And um, it was that kind of understanding that when you're with somebody that is abusive, they aren't just abusive. They know all the things that you need to hear and they can prey on all of your insecurities and they can just make you feel like none of them matter and like you're everything and it's all it's all okay and like that they absolutely worship the ground you walk on but then there's that switch and that's where it comes back down to kissing the devil because they've taken everything that you needed to hear and they've said that but they've done it to hurt you and not to build you up it's like we're looking also for someone to feed our emptiness and we allow the devil in we definitely definitely do that's that's a really powerful insight like we so often think you know like when you need something to survive sometimes you stop caring where it comes from before I became involved with my second husband I was you know who was abusive I was off the back of being young and having a child on my own and I had gotten married the first time thinking this is it. Like I've, I've made a really smart choice. Like I'm going to build my own family. I may have 2.4 children and a white picket fence. And that's me until death do I part. And then I was so ashamed of the fact that my life didn't look the way I meant it to, that I was just, just left myself like wide open. And I was running from stuff like emotionally and stuff from even before that. And I am, oh, I am an expert at running away from the things. Like, and I ran so hard into him because he just said all of the things and I didn't want to question them. I just wanted to believe they were true. So, you know, and it's that, and they are, they are very sweet little lies, but they, they are poisonous too. They are. And what I find is that we run, but like in panic, we run in circles. Oh, we definitely do. I was talking to somebody earlier about overthinking. They said, oh, you know, like I'm just, I just overthink things. And so actually, do you know what? If you examine it, you're not overthinking because overthinking would, it would almost imply that you have a lot of thoughts. What you are, it's stuck on one thought and you're spinning. And if anything, you're underthinking because you can't get out of the thing that you're stuck on. And it's a similar kind of emotionally, we do that. We like, we just spin and we don't examine what else there is that needs to actually be looked at because we don't want to because we just want to believe that it can be this easy to have it all be okay and also it's this easy to have someone 
think that we are so wonderful that they fill us instead of us feeling the joy within us to give out. Like if you're not whole within yourself, then, and you need external validation and you get it, like you don't question it. You're just, you know, it's, it's like, it's like getting a fix of a drug that you need. Yes. Like, oh my gosh, is it possible? Might I actually be enough? You know, and you don't, you just, you just don't want to examine anything other than the kind of temporary stated feeling that you get. Oh, this person thinks I'm enough. Like it, you just, you just want to leave it there and like, don't, don't pick at it. Don't question it. Don't, even when the red flags start popping up, you ignore them because you need the thing that you have been waiting for because you aren't whole within yourself. You need the, the validation more than you need to question the other behavior. I once had a guy that kept thinking that I was so wonderful and complimenting me. And I'm like, finally, I'm like, okay, what is it that you really want? <laughs> I know I'm not all that. <laughs> Do you know what? Like, this is the thing. And I think when somebody really truly does love you, they can look at you and go, Do you know what? You're really grumpy in the morning. And I'll be like, Yes, but I'm adorably grumpy. Like, <laughs> And they'll be like, okay, like, but do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want somebody that thinks I'm perfect. And do you know what else I think I have learned is that we don't fall in love with perfect. We fall in love with imperfect. Yes, if I so agree. Perfect, if somebody was perfect, like, wouldn't they drive you insane all the time? You would feel like it would, if anything, it would just confirm that you weren't good enough because you would be like, but I have all of these flaws, but actually it's them. And it's the little things about a person that drive you crazy when you're with them that you miss when they're gone. And you realize, actually, do you know what? You always thought that your terrible singing in the shower was embarrassing. And I always just thought it made me love you more because you were comfortable to sing terribly in the shower when I was with you. And I genuinely adored it. You know, like there's, it's those things that, that we fall in love with. We do. It is the quirkiness because that's what you remember. Yeah. And it makes you laugh and it makes you feel more humbled also at the same time and it sets you apart it makes you unique that's what makes you memorable that's those are the things someone isn't going to forget about you that's what makes your mark on this life is the way that you are you in a way that nobody else can be like exactly nobody just wants an army of Ken dolls to casually date here and there, like that are all the same that, that that's not how life works that's not what anybody wants even though I think some of us like to pretend we do but that's that's just another self-worth issue. <laughs> like, yes. I remember in the past, I used to say, oh, I don't like this type of guy. And sure enough, that's the kind of guy that I fell in love with. Yeah. The one that I said, I it's think not- karma likes to bite you sometimes that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally got to the point, my sister said, what kind of man do you want? And this was many years ago. And I go, oh, I don't even know what I want. <laughs> it's just, I give up. It's whatever shows up. I don't think it is a, a type. I mean, you can maybe objectively lean towards somebody that looks a certain way, but ultimately I don't think there's, I mean, even physically that there's not a great deal of similarity between anybody I've ever loved. It's in a, it's a chemical, emotional connection. And you could look at somebody, you know, in a picture in a magazine and not think twice about them, but when you meet them and there's that spark, you know, and you, and you get to know them, like, that's what you fall in love with is who a person is. And what, what they look like is an incredibly irrelevant thing at the end of the day, because if you love who they are, then that chemistry, they're never going to be ugly to you. And I've had the other happen where someone that I didn't find so attractive became very attractive because of who they are. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. So let's get back to the devil here. <laughs> <laughs> Kisses sweet like honey, seducing slowly, mind beguiling, body following, anticipating building, and suddenly they bite. This for me was about, it was a way of processing, understanding trauma bonding and a way that, you know, to express it in a way that maybe other people would begin to question. Sometimes, you know, when you're sharing your story, sometimes it's easy to focus on he raped me, he hurt me you know, like he gaslighted me. He told me I was bipolar and people are like, if it was so bad, why didn't you just leave? And you're like, well, because it happened to me slowly. It wasn't like, you know, you, I, we didn't go out on our first date and he just punched me in the face. And I was like, yeah, I love that. That's not how that works. It was, it was wonderful. And it wasn't just wonderful. And then it got terrible. Like it's, 
sometimes that happens within a within a normal relationship things just get worse and that's not abusive that's just a natural pattern for when things start to fall apart they unravel but it would be wonderful and then it would be horrifying and then it would be wonderful again because normally like something will happen to you there was one incident in particular that that sticks with me and it was it was the most traumatic sexual experience that I had within that relationship whereby afterwards I couldn't even pretend that it hadn't happened and I just went straight into my bathroom and I ran just like a scalding hot bath and just tried to clean the shame off of me and you know I didn't stay in my relationship for the guy he was five minutes ago when he hurt me I stayed for the guy he was now in his pajamas sat in scalding hot water that was burning him to make sure I was okay crying in his pajamas in my bathtub that's who I stayed for not the guy that hurt me before you know and it's that constant and you you just want to see that guy you know you want to see the guy in your bathtub and you you allow yourself to ignore the other stuff because you you just you choose the narrative that you need to believe in and sometimes it's just too much to face all of it at once like it's it's a very slow process when you begin if you manage to get out like and you begin to leave and to to unravel it all and the way it built up like even now there are things I forget about and been almost four years and I'll just remember some small thing and it seems innocuous but then think about it and you realize that actually that was like a really damaging thing that you did to me it just seems small but the repetition of it especially was really like psychologically damaging and I didn't even question at it at the time I it just hurt and I I sort of withdrew a little bit and then all of a sudden you'd be wonderful to me so I just let it go. Do you think that because you are a strong woman, you just kept telling yourself maybe, well, I could fix this. I'm strong. I know how to do this. Like not even that I could fix it. I, I could literally deny that it was even happening to me because I would be like, well, no, because I'm tough, you know, and I grew up in a single parent family and my, I could cook for myself as a child. I can put up a shelf. I can handle myself. Like I am, if anything, a little bit gobby and this can't possibly be my narrative because I'm not subservient and I'm not easy to manipulate and I'm I'm not like meek and tiny. I am stroppy and I'm offensive and I couldn't possibly be abused because I'm, you know, like this is who I am. I'm, I'm far too tough for that. Like I genuinely, like because of what I believed about myself and I had this sort of, I guess, tunnel vision whereby I just wouldn't look at any of the things that didn't fit with the way I needed to see myself and I couldn't acknowledge all of the broken that was underneath that and that was the reason for that and that had left me just wide open to being so completely manipulated by somebody else. I saw a documentary and it was a long time ago and it was about women that are strong and why they attract men that sometimes want to possess because it's like a challenge to them that they can conquer the strength. And also, I think the thing is that you feel so often like I felt like I wasn't enough. And if I just did some more, if I could just please him more then I would be enough and it would all be okay again. But actually, the thing I have learned is that, yes, I had my trauma and my brokenness that I was carrying and that left me open to that situation. But if I hadn't had so much to give, he wouldn't have wanted to take it. You know, like if I was really nothing the way that he told me I was, then he wouldn't have been with me. He was with me because it served him to be with me, you know, because I made him look good. He won. He worked in a school and he won. He was the only person, I think, still in the history of the school to win this like staff competition they have for the display boards. And, you know, they have it at the end of each year. He's the only person that won that twice in a row ever. I did that. I made all that stuff. He just went in and put it up. I made the cakes for all of their bake sales. You know, like I used to be a professional, you know, like I used to make novelty cakes, wedding really? cakes, you know, and birthday cakes and stuff. So I would always go all out and I would stay and I would do, and I would go big and I would do all of the things. So on cake Friday, when it was his turn, it was always the best cake that they had, you know, and I, you know, like I made him look good and I had so much love to give and so much, there was so much of me that was broken. I was definitely like codependent. I just didn't understand it. But so I would just give and give and give and give. And I wouldn't ask, you know, I wouldn't take. It was because of how much I had to give, not because of how little I was, but because of how much I was. It takes a long time to be able to see that 
you know, in its fullness and go, actually, do you know what? It was, it wasn't because I wasn't enough. There was one woman that I interviewed on toxic relationships. She was in a relationship like that for 27 years. I think the thing that I underestimated was once I got out, I thought, you know, I'm done. That's fine. I'm out. Like it's, it's okay. But no, I, I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth because it's addictive because you've spent so long being conditioned with the highs and the lows that it, it genuinely behaves like any other addiction and your body needs that. And when you're, you're just low, you need the high again. And then when you're high, you need the low again. It's, it's a really vicious cycle. And so when you leave all of a sudden, you've got nothing and you're not getting a hit, even a bad one. And you just, you just need something, even if it's awful. And it's, it's really, really hard once you get out to stay out. How did you distract yourself into staying out? Or what did you do to be able to stay out? So initially when I left, I tried to fix it. And we went to couples counseling. And I think the thing with, especially with narcissistic abusers, is that they have this gift for saying something that sounds wonderful to everybody else but that will hurt you on such an incredible level. And, you know, and he did that and I took the bait and I reacted and then he got to be all, you know, like indignant and say, oh, I'm not going into counseling with you. You're crazy. You're bipolar. You need to get your own counselor, which he did to hurt me, but actually ultimately was the thing that saved me because then I did have, I did do that. I stayed and I had my own counselor and I went every week to her Um, and he was supposed to have his own counselor, but he went, I think twice and then never showed up again. She is the one I left because he was drinking all the time. And my dad had been an alcoholic. My granddad had been an alcoholic. And I was so fundamentally horrified because I thought I was smarter than becoming that statistic. And he had become like, he he was drinking really heavily, crept up quite quickly. But again, in hindsight, I can see that that wasn't, it shouldn't have been a shock that because that was why I left. I didn't even know I was being abused until I was in counseling. And she just slowly and like really delicately just walked me through things and we would talk about instances and then she would just ask me a question first I was like I don't really even understand why she's asking that but slowly it did she just picked her way through it like and this is the power of having a professional that understands the way that your brain trauma works and doesn't just try to fix it for you and get it done and you know like because God loves them your friends and your family they will give you the most well-intentioned advice, but it's almost always wrong for that type of trauma. I mean, after I stopped seeing her, I still, I went back again, but that time it was quite quick. It was, I think it was maybe the end of September, something like that by the time when I went back and it was, you know, like literally like the night before I remember I'd been at my friend's house and I'd been helping her with like a wedding album that she needed to do on her computer. And He'd been sending me streams and streams of absolutely vile, hateful text messages. And then I was like, do you know what? I'm finally out. Like I'm, I'm definitely like, I'm done. I can set a boundary where I don't have to even read this anymore, which is really hard to do when you have children with somebody because mm-hmm. you can't just block and delete them from your phone. You can't draw a really clean line. And I found that really hard to navigate, but do you know what? I'm out I'm done. This isn't okay. But the next morning, he was there and he was crying on his knees on my bedroom floor. I did take him back and I took one last shot at it. And I am glad that I did. I don't regret that because if nothing else, I can definitely say that I tried. Nobody could ever tell me I didn't try hard enough. I tried mm-hmm. like that time. It was wonderful for like maybe a week. And it was probably only wonderful for as long as a week because we didn't live together. And so, you know, his hidden behavior could stay away from me, but very, very quickly things would happen. And I would just, I would just look at them a little bit differently than I did before. Or sometimes, you know, and I'd be like, that's why she asked me that question. From months before, I started to see things a little bit more difficult, differently. And then it culminated on Christmas day, we were at his house and he had the most terrifying meltdown. And he was like, flailing on the bed and sobbing and it was over something because I had actually said that something was his fault um and it was it was like a really stupid tiny thing but you know like all of his family had sent Christmas cards to him and my children including my son that wasn't even his um without my name on and then they'd sent extra ones that were separate to me like separate from my children as well and I'm like but you've been begging me to take you back for a year so why and I have done, and it's been like three months. So why are they doing that? And, and he was like, 
it's not my fault, is it? And I was like, well, yes, actually it is because they're your family. They've only got the information that you give them. You know, and like that was, to me, that just seemed logical. Like they're not psychic, they don't know, you know? And I, you know, it was the first kind of hint that actually the story I got was not the same story everyone else was getting. And he absolutely, it was genuinely terrifying. I've never seen anything like it. It was almost like watching someone having a fit, like and his arms were flailing and he was crying. He was shouting. He was so far beside himself over the idea that I said that this was his fault. And it was such a tiny thing. And it was the first time where I didn't feel guilt over that. I placated it. I played into it, but it was a conscious choice in order to create a safe environment for my children and not me just trying to fix it and saying, I'm sorry because I believed that he was right and it was my fault and I'd caused him all of this pain and I had this guilt. I, I consciously fixed it just to try and get my children through Christmas day without that being their environment. And he was studying at the time and by, it was New Year's day then, sent me a text message and I was at home and he was at his house and sent me a text message and he said, it was something like, I'm gonna stop studying at three o'clock and I'm gonna have a drink, either to celebrate the fact that I've got a decent wife or that I'm single again. And I was like, well, honey, you might as well start drinking now. (laughs) Because if your behavior is gonna be exactly the same, whether you have a family or not, not when I finish studying, can I come and see the kids and take them to the park for an hour before I have a drink and I relax. Just my behavior is gonna be the way I want it to, irrespective of whether you're in my life or not. I was just like, well, crack on. Like, and at that point I had seen it from a kind of a more distant perspective and my, my counselor's questions were coming through all of the time. And I had this terror of Christmas day still in my mind. And I was just like, no, do you know what? If you can't behave differently with a family than without one, then you don't deserve to have them. And that's, that was it for me. And I, but that was over a year. I initially left him in the February before that. So that was, that was a long time of back and forth after leaving that you know to actually get to that point where I finally felt free of it and I think I still went and slept with him a couple more times but that was on me just to kind of scratch an itch and by that point I enjoyed having the power in the situation because I'd never had it before Uh and eventually I just it was like the last time it was really bad I mean you can tell one of the things I struggle with is pornography and so many people like so many men watch it thinking it's educational Actually, when you're with a man that's watched too much pornography, it makes them bad in bed. This was a thing. It's also a thing that's often used in abusive relationships is to hurt you, is that they will say, well, I have to do this because you're not good enough and you're not fun enough and you don't do the things that they do. And it's like a conditioning, it's coercive. And, you know, like, and I got to the point where I was just like, I was with him and I was laying there and I was like, do you know what? It's not even good. And I just got up and left. I was like, see ya. Like this is, and I, that was a really crazy, like, and I left and I was like, oh my God, I just did that. Like, it was like almost like an out of body. Like, do you know what? Finish yourself. I'm, I'm done. I'm out. It was, <laughs> it was, it was so, and I honestly, I don't even know where the sh- nerve that it took me to do it came from. It, it just happened. It takes a long time and it took a lot of very, very careful professional counseling for me to be able to see those things for what they were and not for my inadequacy. Not, this is bad because I'm not good enough. Actually, this is bad because you're doing a bad job. And it's, it's, really, it's really difficult when you, when you don't have any sense of who you are or your own value to understand that when there's somebody telling you it's your fault, that they're lying. And not only that, it's also that you have children you have to consider. And as a mother, that's your first thing you protect. And so sometimes you sacrifice yourself for that, but sometimes the sacrifice is not a valid sacrifice. No, and do you know what? And I think if it had only been me, I don't think I'd have left. But I got pregnant again with my third, which was my second child with him like quite soon. And so I had two kids under two. And actually the difference in how he responded to our daughter to how he responded to our son really started to to make me question there were some things that had happened while I was pregnant that were very traumatic for me but I you know like I was heavily pregnant I I couldn't deal with that like I it was too much 
And I just kept telling myself, like, it's going to be okay. You know, like, this is going to happen. And, you know, he's just under a lot of strain right now or whatever. But things like he chose to start smoking while I was pregnant. Like, this is dangerous for my unborn child. And he knew we were going to co-sleep. And he would say, you know, oh, yeah, but I'll quit. I'll quit when the baby comes. And he didn't quit when the baby comes. So then we were co-sleeping with a newborn. And he was coming to bed drunk having been smoking. And I was like, this, my baby's lungs cannot literally cope. Or you absentmindedly in your drunkenness rolling on him. So instead of the baby in the middle, I was in the middle. I was awake all night, like virtually between feeding the baby and then just protecting the baby and using myself as like a shield. And then having to be alert because I couldn't let the baby roll the other way and he needed to be with me. And I found that rejection of what was best for my child so much easier to act on than anything he ever did to me. That's totally understandable. I find that mothers, you know, there are some bad ones out there, but in general, they will do almost anything for their child. Yeah. And I mean, and there are some bad ones out there and it's, and I, I don't think it's like a, an easy line to, to draw what's a good mother, what's a bad mother, because there's a lot of ways in which my childhood was not ideal. But I also, as an adult, understand that my parents were just two broken people doing the very best they could with what they had. And it also wasn't their fault that what they had wasn't enough, you know, mm. and they've, I love them so much. And we have really good relationships now. There's been a lot of healing actually that's come from me having to because of my relationship and my counseling, then I had to face my childhood rather than just running from it. And that made me have the hard conversations with my parents. But that was incredibly restorative and incredibly healing. And so much has come out of this. You know, there's nothing that is so lost that you can't have it be restored. I'm genuinely like, I'm so grateful for that. But also, you know, at the time, my dad was drinking a lot. My mom was depressed. She, you know, she had like suicidal depression and she, she did the best she could. But because when you're in that kind of depressive state, I was neglected because she just couldn't join the dots. It wasn't because she didn't love me. It was because she just physically couldn't put the things together. And I, like, I got sick and I ended up in the hospital. And it was, you know, like somebody had come around to our house and they said, I think you need to take that baby to the hospital. And she looked and she went, oh, you know, like, and she just couldn't connect all of the things together in like a linear state. She just thought, well, she hasn't had a drink and she hasn't eaten. I'll try again in like a half hour without going, hang on, do you know what, this is a two-year-old and it's been four days. You know, she just mm. kept thinking, I'll just keep trying. And she absolutely loved me with all of what she had. It just, it was what she had was broken and that wasn't her fault either. Her childhood was a million times worse than mine was. And mine was worse than my children's will be. And maybe by the time they have children, someone will get it right. Like, yes. Yeah, because that's the same thing with my parents. I mean, they grew up in such poverty and that's all they knew was lack. The only thing that I can say that my parents did so well is that I always knew they loved me. Yeah. They really loved us. And I think that is what makes things different. My mom, we had to put her into a facility because she has dementia. And the woman said, the nurse, she said, she must have been a loving mother. And I said, yes, she was. She goes, because I see how you hug her and kiss her and we don't see that with everybody yeah Yeah. no and it's like it's it is it's it's strange to I love my mother and like now and I know how much she loves me but it's something I've had to learn as an adult and as a child it's not something I was sure of it was you know that's how you become codependent like I I understood that my behavior was you know if I behaved the right way I would receive love and if I didn't I wouldn't Mm -hmm. and that when you're growing up is is very difficult and you talk about you hugging your kids and mom I'm not at that point like I love my mom dearly but I I'm not affectionate with her and I have had to learn to be affectionate with my own children and that was a weird thing you know the first time I held my baby in my arms and to love something so much and to want to hold it like I've I've never been you know like a public displays of affection kind of girlfriend or you know like I've been I'm quite reserved I guess not reserved that's not even the right word but I'm not I struggle with affection I I guess because I didn't know it and to then and even now sometimes like my children are all being really really needy all at once I I do feel myself like start to kind of tighten up it's really really hard because I wasn't allowed to be needy and I read this wonderful book 
um, I think it was called like the book you wish your parents had read. And it talked about how you think you're reacting to the situation that is now, but actually so often you're reacting to the situation that was then. So when my children and I've, I've, I've really worked on it, like, and it, it's still hard, but I'm, because I'm conscious of it, I can manage it. So, but when for a while, especially being on my own and being under so much emotional strain, having left this, you know, like trauma bonding and dealing with all of that and CPTSD and my children were all pouring at me at the same time and they all needed something different. And there was, I just didn't have enough to give. And I would really like really struggle. And it really helped me to understand that that wasn't because they needed something. It was because I had never been allowed to need something. And so it's, it is self-awareness. It's once you kind of understand your reactions to things, you don't just stop doing them. They're, they're built in there, but you can begin to correct the way that you think. Right. That hug to give someone, you know, especially your children a hug. It means mm -hmm. so much because you remember that as you get older. I find it easier when I pick them up than when they all suddenly jump on me at once and they all need something different <laughs> and I feel torn and pulled and I'm like, because that almost kind of affirms the, the, you know, the feeling of I'm not enough because I can't deal with all of those. There's, there's too many of you. I'm outnumbered. <laughs> like, but I'm also, I think it's also being kind to yourself and understanding that actually irrespective of my trauma and my history, that's something every mother feels at some time. Even when you've only got one child, there is a point at which you just, it's too much. And you're like, you know, like that's, that's a universal motherhood experience. It's not my failing. It's, we are all just winging it. You know, motherhood is a job, no matter how many books you read, every kid is different. Every mother is different. Every father is different. Parenting is something that you learn on the job, whether yeah. you try and prepare yourself for it or not. Like you just have to, there's no other choice. And, you know, but having a little bit of compassion with yourself and just saying, do you know what? Actually, yes, I, I didn't handle that the best I could, but I'm not going to crumple under the weight of that. I'm going to understand that I am doing the best I can and I'm going to move on. And next time I'm going to handle it better because I'm learning, yes. you know, but that's a, that's a hard place. It was a hard place for me to get to. I think some people, some people, I hope most people get there a little easier. I have yet to hear of any mother that thinks it's easy. No, like, you know, the responsibility of that mind that you want to be that wonderful parent. And I think that's why some parents are overbearing. Mm -hmm. As they just, they know and feel that, oh, I went through this, so I don't want you to go through that, but they're here to learn a different story. Yeah, exactly. I'm not the same mother my mother was, but you know, like there's, and there's things that I have been able to face and to overcome and be different because of the relationship and the childhood I had. There's a lot of lessons in that. It's, it's not for nothing. There's, I had the experiences I needed to make me who I am. And that's an incredible thing irrespective of how good or bad any of those experiences were it's it's what you take them and how you grow them and how you raise the tiny human beings that you're going to mold in this world and you learn and you make sure that they have enough I'm just going to mess up different stuff you know <laughs> yes there's new stuff all the time like for, I'm raising boys on my own as a single woman at some point I'm going to have a teenage boy like what am I going to do with that I don't know I'm going to have to but I'm aware Mm -hmm. And I, I listen to, you know, there's a couple of podcasts. Sometimes I listen to like men's health, like men's mental health podcasts. Uh, yes. Which seems maybe strange, but I just think actually, do you know what? Because at this point in my life, maybe by the time I get there, you know, there will be somebody who can help me with that. But right now I need to understand the challenges that young men are facing because how can I guide my sons to be the young men that I didn't know when I was young? boys that understand the value of women that also understand that it's not weak to cry, that it's okay to feel things. No, in my age bracket, the number one cause of death among men is suicide. Wow. You know, that's, I don't want that to be the way my children can't process their emotions to the point that that's how they feel, you know, like that's, that's not okay. And so I'm trying to stay conscious and to, yeah, to listen to what are the pressures that a young men are facing and it's a lot like it is it's a lot I feel more pressure to raise boys than I do my girl because I've been a girl and I know what she's facing and I can raise her to not take any crap that's fine but how do I raise boys that are you know like and I think about going to high school and I don't remember any teenage boys being like super respectful you know no 
They thought it was cool to put you down. And if they liked you, they actually hurt you more because that was the thing. When they told you, oh no, he's just picking on you because he likes you. Who tells girls that? That's damaging. Yeah, that's very. Oh, that guy's horrible to me. He must be super into me. I'll probably date him. Like, no. I know, exactly. It's like, oh yes, here, let me start abuse early. Yeah, I mean, and let me choose to believe that it's that's how it's supposed to be. Like, it's not. And I think one of the things that genuinely annoys me to this day is my first kiss. Really? Been this sweet, you know, like slightly nervous, like beautiful moment with somebody I liked, but it wasn't. It was this boy I barely knew that walked across the playground, stuck his tongue in my mouth, and walked away again. I didn't even talk to him. We weren't friends. I didn't. And I just stood there like I did what, you know, but I did to this day, it pisses me off that my moment was robbed because boys are told to behave like that. He did it with some like eight girls in one playground, like one lunchtime, you know? And I just think, but this is how our boys were being raised. This yes, was, which is you know, not culturally, good. you know, boys will be boys and it's locker room talk. Like, well, it's not, I'm, I will not have sons that behave that way. No. We absolutely refuse. But then that is my responsibility to learn how to guide them through that situation. And I take that responsibility, I think far more seriously than I would if there was a man here to help. You know, what's weird is that that's like domination. And in order to dominate, you have to feel like you can be the aggressor because you're actually fear bound. There's fear there that, that if you don't do this, you're going to be weak. And it doesn't mean you're weak. It means you're powerful actually. Well, yeah, but they're not told that. And I think for men, especially there's this whole like victim Viking, you know, it's eat or be eaten world and either you go out and you smash it or you're a failure. And I think that's actually far more prevalent for men than it is for women. We allow ourselves a little bit more in terms of like learning and finding a middle ground, but men very often, especially when they've, I think, especially in sports and things where you're just fully just you have to win like if you don't win what's the point you know yeah why are you even playing the game yeah exactly that and it's it is it's eat or be eaten because if you're not winning you're losing not like if you're not winning you're just thriving at something else like or you're learning men like culture doesn't leave space for men to learn either you're on top of it or you're nothing and that's terrifying I don't want my children growing up in that world all the perceptions we have It's that not being in touch with who we are, but being in touch with whatever the media throws at us. And that's why your poetry and doing stuff on Pinterest really reaches out to people. That to me is more of a positive thing from a negative experience or even not not even a negative experience. Because sometimes I think that there's really no negative or positive. There's learning. There is. There's learning. I love actually like over here at the minute. The, the adverts for signing up to the army of all things, they, they talk about failure. And I think it's a, it's a really powerful campaign because they're actually, they're saying actually, do you know what? In the army, we embrace failure. That's how we learn. We, he says, fail, learn, win is the like tagline. Mm-hmm. And it, it struck me the first time I heard it on the radio because it's such an unmilitary kind of point of view. It's not what you expect. And it's actually culturally very appropriate right now. Um, and I was like, exactly. do you know what? I like that. Fail, learn, win. You know, like, and you can't expect to win something you haven't learned. Right. And they're using the psychology now of what's prevalent and what the society mm-hmm. needs. I don't know. In a way, I find some advertising so manipulative that I. Oh, it's I, all manipulative. <laughs> oh, but some of it is like so in your face manipulative mm-hmm. that follow me here. I'll give you this. And you give someone three lines of something and then you try to sell them something. And I think selling people something is not a bad thing because we all have to make a living. And if we're good at what our service is, then we want to sell it and we want to make money. But I'm talking about the hard sells. The hard sells always turn me off. I think the thing that gets me and we're you know, talking about self-worth, especially in I was going to say, especially in women's marketing, but actually also, I don't know that it isn't equally a problem in men's marketing. Now that I'm thinking about it is that underlying tone of you're not enough because exactly you need these jeans to have your butt look good enough. You need this makeup to make your face look good enough. You know, 
not these are great jeans and you'll feel great wearing them if you want, you know, like, and actually we put all this effort into understanding women's bodies so that we could make the best jeans possible for you to make you feel better. Like that's, I know it's like that message is, is too much. And it's, it's actually, I mean, it is, I think it is slowly changing, but we are facing, it's changing off the back of years and years and like, like decades of telling women that they need these products to make them better. And well, I mean, imagine if every woman just for a week stopped buying products they were told would make them better because they weren't enough. Like, the world would end, like the whole of <laughs> the financial society would crumple. I think I've historically thought about it as a women's problem, but now that I'm sat here, I don't, I don't think it is. Look at men's magazines, you know, and there's oh, yeah. like GQ, like the guy on the cover of that. That's not a regular looking guy, is it? Like it's not. And that the touch up heaven for both men and women magazines. Yeah. Nobody's that perfect. And the marketing I find to them is more testosterone based. Yeah. So it's cars, it's fast moving, it's electronics. It's like the coolest new uh, wallet or whatever. But it still, if you drive this car, it'll make you be enough. You'll be cool exactly. enough if you have this the latest, you know, like Xbox or PlayStation, or if your computer's this, or if you're, you have the best phone, then that makes you cooler. Like, like it's the same subliminal undertone of you need this because you're not enough. Not look, we made something that's awesome. That's why you should want it. Exactly. And nowadays, if you get something that's off and after you saw an advertisement like that, you're like shocked. I'm like, wow, this is really good. Yeah. <laughs> Cause we, we get so much junk most of the time. Yeah. I think and things are shifting and it's really inspiring to see how many people are turning around and saying and it's the power of the collective voice and one of the one of the good things that comes through social media which is such a double-edged sword mm-hmm. but is that people you know when people stand together and they say do you know what we're not going to let companies treat us like this then they they are listening and they're and then oh I mean it's it's difficult because then you do still get the ones that go oh look that's working for them we'll jump on that bad wagon and their motivation is still just as bad. It's, it's just piggybacking. Well, it's all the marketing stuff. If a celebrity owns a bag, then everybody wants it. But what they don't realize, the celebrity got the bag for free. Well, exactly. And like, we're supposed to believe that celebrity actually uses supermarket shampoo. Like, and like yeah. they definitely don't. No, they don't. Um, side note, you're disappearing because it's getting really dark over there. It is getting really <laughs> Is that? There you go. You're there. Oh, you yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's getting light. Like the sun is starting to. Starting it was to very fade. cool, like Lado Scudo style, but still. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to fade to like a really beautiful black and white. And then, yeah. <laughs> you know, just kind of like Sin City. You remember that film where just his sneakers were red, like make it yeah. super cool. Oh, the, yeah, that's true. So <laughs> let's, I want to go back to one part of the poem and then we could finish the poem because we're having such a fabulous conversation. I mean, I love Just the like way friend, like it's so comfortable. It's really been it's been really nice. Oh, thank you. I love making my guests feel really comfortable because I think it's important. It should be a conversation. I think you get like a better truth out of somebody that doesn't feel like they need to stand on ceremony. Like it's nice yeah. to be able to get to the raw, like, you know, especially and also where. I don't know what you're going to ask. It wasn't like a, a prepared question thing. So you can't prepare. So you have to do it off the cuff and then you don't have time to think of something clever. You just kind of have to go with it. Like, and I think that works really well. Yeah. And I'm really kind to my guests. I always try to make you look as good as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, your mind is playing catch up, leaving you terrified, but craving more. Yeah. So this, I mean, this at its heart is a trauma. It's a trauma bonding poem. And, you know, it's not, I think there are a lot of relationships that aren't abusive that don't work out. And there's, you know, like there's the steep kind of incline at the beginning and they have their highs and lows, like when we go through trauma, but you know, it slowly unravels and there's a decline, but with an abusive relationship, it's a really intense high followed by a low, followed by a high, followed by a low. And there's almost none of the just middle ground, you know? And I used to, I remember saying to him one time, like, I just want a boring life. Like I can't take this. Like, and I just, you know, but because it's so, it's so high and so low and so high and so low and so high and it's all the time. And I, it didn't make any sense because it would be so wonderful after being so painful that I would always feel like my mind was like two or three steps behind where my life was. 
And I was trying to figure it out, but it was moving too quickly to add all the new pieces in. And it wasn't until I was fully out and separate from that situation that I could actually go back and start to unravel some of it and to straighten it out and order it in a way that made sense. And I mean, even now this, and I think especially where it is traumatic, there's so much of it that your mind blocks out because it needs to. Um, and so it's been almost four years since I left. Uh, my son is coming up to four years old and he was like five months old um, wow. when I left. So, but there'll be, I'll be like walking along from the school run and it doesn't like blindside me anymore, but I'll remember something and I'll be like, oh, why didn't I remember that before now? You know, and I think slowly as you heal, your mind is able to release kind of memories and to, to allow you to feel some of the things again when you're capable of them, because you definitely, there are certain things that I just, couldn't have told you were happening when they were happening at all it's taken a lot a lot of healing and a lot of counseling and a lot of independent work from me following on from counseling to not just be like oh well counseling's done so I'll stop now you know I've done so much more of that work since then but it's yeah that feeling of like always chasing your tail and not quite understanding what's going on in your own life is it's incredibly disorientating Mm-hmm. because of the constant highs and the constant lows like you especially after I left that is that's an addiction it's no different than being addicted to pills or alcohol or any of the other things that we are addicted to when it's gone there's a void and yeah. you you need to get ahead of it and you don't even care at that point you're just like you even if I pick a fight at least I'm getting something you know yeah, and it's it's, not- that's the hardest part to break yes yeah, that void that makes you have to deal with what's in your head. Yeah, you have to face yourself at that point and what it was in you. And for me, like I had to finally come face to face with the broken I was so far before that. And that enabled me to be in that position to begin with, because I shouldn't have been there. If you're a a happy, healthy, whole individual with a sense of self-worth, you don't allow yourself to spend years being abused by another human being. You know, and I had to, in that space where there was this huge huge void I had to say well okay well what am I going to fill myself with because it can't stay empty it's gonna it's gonna get filled up with something and I need to now make a conscious choice about what that is and what I allow myself to be filled up with and I went back and I did you know like all of the all of that inner work and it took a really long time to fill myself with a sense of worthiness and an understanding and an ability to be kind to myself and compassionate to myself and to understand that it was okay that I didn't have it all together because I was doing the best that I could. Today was a rubbish day, but you know what? Tomorrow I'm just going to go to bed and tomorrow I'm going to get up and we're going to start over and it's going to be easier. And as you take it one day at a time, you know, like there's a, there's a saying somewhere, I can't remember who it was. He said, you know, like the months were quick, but the seconds were excruciating. And I think that's, that's it. You go through and it feels, I just literally have to put my one foot in front of the other one, but you keep doing that. And all of a sudden you look back and you're like, Oh, do you know what? It's been six months and I'm okay. And I'm, I'm actually doing a little better. And I think about it a little less and I'm healing a little more and I'm crying a little less. And you know, when I'm smiling a little bit more and I'm, I actually saw one of my friends who I haven't seen because I was so isolated and I had social anxiety and then you, you begin to actually build who you were. And I've built a life that I love, but it's taken a long time. And it's taken being very intentional about what I allowed myself to fill that void with. So do you think that within the relationship, since you felt unworthy, do you think that that perpetuated his behavior as well? Yeah, absolutely. Like he fully fed off of my need for his validation, Um, you know, and when you don't feel like you're enough, somebody else in their own, I mean, ultimately, I think it does narcissism comes down to also a similar level of unworthiness. It just manifests differently. Mm -hmm. So you need to give enough and they need to take enough to be filled up, you know, and it's, it's a symbiotic relationship in a lot of ways that's just a very dangerous one. Yeah, it's sad that there are so many broken people and you don't know that until you get into a relationship, be it a friendship, a co-worker or something, you start to see it. There are many people out there that I don't agree with some of their beliefs, but I can also see the pain in them. 
And me not agreeing with them is my perception. So I have to understand that, that we're not all going to think the same. But there's so much hurt and fear. And some people are very aggressive about it. Others withdraw. Others try to seek help. Others show anger and abuse. But it all really comes down to, like you said, it's, it's all one, but we're just acting differently. It is. And I think at the end of the day, it is really hard, especially because I could look at his childhood and where certain things were maybe unusual within the times when his brain was making key cognitive leaps. And I can understand the science behind how he became or how he developed, you know, like that narcissistic personality disorder. But I found it really hard to separate for myself, understanding it and having compassion for that. But that's still not making it okay for me to have to live with it because there becomes a point as an adult the same as there was for me and I was codependent and I had to face that and as an adult I had a responsibility to address that and I think it's difficult but I you know I have to accept that that wasn't my job to fix him if he wasn't willing to do the work I didn't have to live with the abuse right it is really difficult because I could just see it like and I get it I get why I get how you became who you are and I get that hurting people hurt people but that doesn't mean that I don't still deserve to set boundaries. Because they're hurting, it's not your fault that they're hurting. You didn't create the fault. So there's nothing that you should be responsible for. But too bad that people don't don't grow together. They end up just ending. Mm -hmm. It really both have to work on it. It's relationships, be it friendships or even family. It takes work from both sides. Healthy and whole, it still takes a lot of work. It does because you're conscientious all the time. Yeah. And there's, there's no such thing as like a a fully developed, like human being. We're all growing all the time. Life is growing. You're never done. No matter, even if you are coming from a place of wholeness to begin with, there's always going to be something that you can work on, that you need to learn, that you evolve, that you change culture around you changes. People change. People come into your life that are going to challenge you in ways that you didn't understand. And it's, that's a constant evolving process. So even in whatever kind of relationship you're in I think we as a culture think well what am I going to get from this relationship and frankly at the beginning of a relationship I think it would be far healthier if we each sat and made a list of what we wanted to bring to it with that with us learning I want to use that as a way of getting into your photography because your photography is so beautiful and so calming and the colors and the lighting and seeing happy children is really nice. Began to explore it while we were still together, but towards the end, I started getting offered jobs, you know, in social media and like, it was quite like a, you know, I'd, I'd worked for myself for such a long time, but this was something I could do with a tiny baby and a toddler. And, you know, so it worked really well for me. And I, that inspired me and it gave me a reason to, explore something a little bit more and to get better like I'd always loved photography but it gave me like a reason to say it's okay to make time for this because actually I can provide for my family by doing it not it's a an indulgent you know like thing that's just all about me and that I'm gonna have to feel guilty for by the time I left where I just I felt like such an absolute mess within myself and I felt so ugly and I felt like such a failure that for me to be able to take these moments with my children that were the only reason I was still standing and to catalog them in a way that was incredibly beautiful so that not so much for anybody else, you know, with social media, but for me, so that at the end of a hard day, I felt like an awful mom and like I was failing everybody because there wasn't enough of me to go around and everybody was at such a different developmental stage that I couldn't just meet all of their needs with the same thing at the same time to be able to get into bed and somehow just through my blurry, teary eyes, look at these moments where I could see pure joy on my children's faces. That was enough. You know, that's, that's medicine right there. And I, you know, I had done like art at A level at school. I began to explore, you know, perspective. And so, yes, I began to explore within my photography ways to initially like perspective and, you know, like playing about with trying to make something, you know, in the foreground be big and making that kind of, you know, almost like that Alice in Wonderland sense of of magic. But also like when you have children, you know, children see magic, 
no, there'll be planes in the sky, but they'll they'll believe that they're meteors or there'll be a game and they'll turn them into, you know, like asteroids. And, you know, like, and I tried to find a way then to like digitally within my photography, whether it was just painting their faces or dressing them up or whether it was actual like Photoshop stuff to create that magic that they saw so that one day when they look back, they could they could feel it, you know, in the same way that I could feel it in the moment watching them. Um, and that was such a wonderful journey for me and having a creative outlet made such a difference for me in my own healing and in my processing and in its simplest form, just having a little project to focus on that is really important for getting you through the day. Um, even sometimes now when I am struggling, some, you know, been a long time and I don't so much struggle with any of my relationship stuff, but, and I'm not often lonely, but sometimes the weight of having to make all of the decisions by myself without somebody else's opinion to like balance mine and just to bounce stuff off of, sometimes that feels heavy. And I'll be like, God, you need to give me a project. And like, <laughs> because I just, I need something I can do with my hands that will let my mind work, you know, separately. They say about things like going for a walk often, when you're doing some certain types of tasks, when you're doing them, it actually unlocks the problem solving side of your brain because it's not focusing on the wrong thing. And so, you know, like I'll make my friend's husband a birthday cake or, you know, like somebody will text me something and I'll be like, yes, that's a project I can get on board. With that. <laughs> I needed that this evening. I was about to go down the rabbit hole, but I'll bake cakes instead. <laughs> like That's true. Cause I find when I'm doing my creative stuff, I don't have a moment to have a chatter. No. You just, you know, like you're focused and you're, especially when you're learning, like when I was learning Photoshop and stuff like that, you're, you're so absorbed in figuring something out, but it is something that you can figure out and something that you learn. And it's nice to have a problem that you can solve and that you can have control over when everything else feels like it's spinning. I think it's like an, it's an unexpected, but actually really, really helpful way to kind of retrain your brain. Because you have the control, me being an actor, I have absolutely no control over the decision. Mm -hmm. I own, the only thing I have control of is my performance, how well I did it. And then I have to let it go. It, yeah. It's, I have like absolutely no control. And that's what I like about my writing. I do have the control. Yeah, I think. And it's me. Something we can control in life and so often it's a problem within addiction, within eating disorders, with stuff like that, is that these things often manifest when we, we feel like we're spinning and we have no control. So having something simple in front of you that you can keep on top of in a way that's like healthy is really important. I think creativity as well, you know, like I've listened to a lot of Brené Brown over course, you know, she talks so much about shame, which has been such a big issue for me. But, you know, like, and she has the 10 guideposts for wholehearted living in the, in the one of her books and creativity. And she says, she really, one of the things that she says she really struggled with was actually going, hey, do you know what? All of these wholehearted people that come up in their data, creativity is an important aspect of their life. It's, and it's, it can be anything. I mean, you can get creative in the way that you organize your shoes if you want to. Like, it doesn't have to be that you don't have to paint. You don't have to write. You don't have to take photos but there's a way to be creative in something in your life. Even if you're horrible at it, it's the taking the time and the process that's more important than the results. Yes. Well, you could get creative with something even like accounting. But you can. I mean, I mean that's how uh, forensic stuff came into being. People got creative with it. Yeah. And I just think there's such beauty in creation. There's a lot of beauty in creation where destruction doesn't create any beauty, even though sometimes you have to get rid of the old to start with the new. I think as well for me, if I can take something that hurt and find a way to do something creative with it and to find the beauty in it, then that changes the narrative for me. And I, it's no longer, it doesn't own me. I own it with my story and with my trauma, that's become such a powerful thing. And I have been able to use social media and photography and writing poetry and all of these things and I can write about something that hurt me and I can write it in a way that is traumatic but that is also beautiful that makes it mine 
And that makes it something that I own and not something that happened to me. I'm not a victim when I take possession of my own story and I use it to change somebody else's life. That's the power in it for me. It's amazing how much we are connected, that when we make even a stranger feel good about their lives, to make them feel like they're not alone, and it fills us, even though we might not even know them. That's, I think that's the thing for me. And that's why once I had been brave enough to post, I realized that I, I had to keep on telling my story and I had to keep on. And I built the second Instagram account so that it would be separate. So there was like a clear, easy space for my kind of things. I don't want to just have like child poetry, child, like, and it be <laughs> a, another mess. Like, so yeah. that is exactly it for me. If, and I just think, when you're in the thick of it, and not just not just you know abuse, but any kind of anything that you're struggling with, the first time I lost a baby, I felt like I was mm. the only woman in the world that was. But realistically, I'm. It's very common, but people don't talk about it. I think it's it's just that if I just stop one woman who was in the position I was in, feeling like she's completely alone in that, like that's me. I'm done. I'm my purpose in life. I'm happy. That also means he didn't win because it means that good came from what I went through. And then we look at life as losing or winning though, too. Oh yeah. And that's, I mean, and that is, it's, it's a really difficult one, isn't it? Because you are culturally, we do feel, you know, you get called a loser, don't you? Like, and like, it's an insult to lose at something like realistically one person wins and everyone else loses like in a, in a competitive situation. And what's actually, it is a really damaging kind of victim Viking lens. I think generally in life, I don't look at it that way. But with this situation, because of the way he treated it, it feels that way. Feels like a Um, victory. Because he tried to take ownership of me and control me. So I think that it does feel that way in some ways. I understand that that was his hurt and his need for control. You know, I, we all manifest our trauma in different ways. It's like a very interesting one. And I don't think there is anything healthy about being a winner or a loser because nobody wins at all the things you can be making all of the money and then you can go home and cry yourself to sleep you know or you can be completely broke and happy as a clam you know like there's no <laughs> there is no winning yes. or losing because there are so many life is so multifaceted you if you're on top of as many things as you're failing at I think it just balances out and we're all just kind of muddling through and winging it and doing the best we can I think our soul's here to learn. I think if we think of ourselves as that we're only here to learn, we're not going to be so hard on ourselves. Yeah. So often you're, people forget that learning is a process. You don't win at something that you haven't learned how to do. And Mm -hmm. none of us have lived this life before. We're all just figuring it out. And there's, you know, that's again, the power of human connection is that someone else is a little bit ahead of you on a similar journey sometimes. And they say, hey, do you know what? I've been where you are. And I figured that out. And here's how you win at that thing on that day. But just because I win, it doesn't mean you lose. Like there's this picture I put up on Instagram one time and I can't remember who drew it, but there was two little girls and they were in, they were holding hands and they were in t-shirts that said, her success is not your failure. And I think that's, that's it. Like so often we are jealous of what other people have as if somehow them winning means we're losing. We're not losing. We're just in a different place. We're in a different race. We're in a different fight. Like whatever it is, it's not, it's not a competition. No. And also I find that similar energy attracts similar energy. So if you're around people that are successful, you're in a good place of what you think is successful. Some people are successful at relationships better or money or, but that just means you could learn from them. It's not where you should be jealous of them. You should learn from them. They're they're there. Mm-hmm. To me, it's like, this is an opportunity for me to learn. Yeah, it absolutely is. Like if they, if they have what you want, it's not about begrudging the fact that they have it. It's going, well, hang on. What, what can I learn from this situation? What can I take and what can I apply? What did they do? Is that something that will work for me? Is it not something that'll work for me? You know, like, am I prepared to make the same choices they did? You know, and you have to take it back and evaluate it. And because actually when you break it down, sometimes what you perceived as them winning to begin with wouldn't feel like winning if, if you had it the same way is because we're all so completely different. And some person might have an incredible job and loads of money and they might not have wanted to have a family. But if you do and you make all the same decisions that they did, then maybe you don't have time for that. Like it's such a 
such a fluid concept and it really is completely unique to every single person. Louise, in closing, what would you like to say to the audience? You've covered so many beautiful experiences, even though at the time they didn't seem beautiful, but they taught you and brought you to where you are. What would you like to share if someone was going through what you were going? I think I would- A word of advice? Like to encourage them that when you look back over it, you will see the beauty in it again. Even, and I think I would encourage you to really look for it because sometimes I know it's hard to see and the world feels like it's eating you alive. But if you can just find one moment, I think the most powerful thing I've learned to practice is gratitude. And every night I lay my head on my pillow and I make a list and I try to keep it day specific. I mean, sometimes there's a wider sense of, if it's been a hard day, sometimes I am just grateful that that day that my legs worked and my eyes worked. Because imagine if my child smiled and I couldn't see it. Like I can't imagine that's, but that's somebody's reality out there. And that's being grateful for those basic things. But generally I try to keep it day specific you know, and I'm grateful that, you know, like then my friend texted me out of the blue and she sent me a really sweet message and, you know, that I was on her mind and I'm grateful, got my kitchen cleaned and all my jobs done, or I'm grateful that I didn't shout too much. I'm grateful that I managed to be more present with, you know, like it could be anything. Some days it's a longer list than others. Learning to practice gratitude is the key to accessing joy. And if you can find even in the darkest moments, something to be grateful for, then you have a reason to make it to the next moment to find something else to be grateful for. And life, life becomes so much easier. I think no matter how much I feel like I've lost, I also understand that I'm not entitled to anything. So I already have so much more from taking that perspective. And I have three incredible, beautiful, tiny human beings. You know, I'm not entitled to have them. I'm blessed to have them, even when they're making my life incredibly difficult. And they're trying to kill each other as kids do as they do how can people reach you website i do i have all of the things that you know pinterest and twitter and a blog the thing i will actually remember to respond to is instagram on my beautifully defected page i have two pages but more often than not it is signed into the page where i write which is just beautifully underscore defected and beautifully defective life perfect I want to thank you so much for being on the show. You have been very open and very authentic, and I really appreciate it. And I love this amazing poem where the devil kisses. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such an honor to share with you and to speak with you and to learn a little bit about you in the process as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, and many other podcast platforms. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates.